This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Please take care while listening and email svri at svri.org for advice and resources. When you hear the same message across different countries, different contexts, that gives it some weight and rigor. Welcome to another episode of the Sexual Violence Research Podcast from the SVRI. I am Angelica Pino. And I am Elizabeth Dartnell. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children. And in this podcast, we learn how to make that vision a reality. Our guests today are Jean Kemitare from the Urgent Action Fund in Africa and Gemma Good from the UN Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women. Now, there are many ways in which we work to tackle violence against women and violence against girls. But one approach which should be included in research and work in this field is something called practice-based knowledge, or PBK. This approach uses the cumulative knowledge and learning acquired by practitioners over many years, specifically through hands-on action. For example, facilitating community activities, running a training session, or responding to backlash. It's also a culmination of the stories and experience shared by practitioners based on program participants' stories and other stakeholders that they engage with on a daily basis. Let's hear a bit more about what practice-based knowledge is and why it is so important in the efforts to improve our balance against women prevention programming. Jean says practice-based knowledge is a kind of wisdom that is accumulated over time. Listening to and writing and reflecting and recording in whatever way possible insights, work that is done at the community or with partners, insights from monitoring data and insights from, you know, rudimentary ways of collecting um, information that organizations engage with as they go about their work. And then that same information that's collected is reflected on, analyzed in, you know, a whole range of simple ways to make meaning and innovations and, and inform further relevance and effectiveness of work that's going on. Yeah, I would I would very much agree. Here at the UN Trust Fund, we adhere to the, the definition that was defined by raising voices, I believe, first, as practice-based knowledge being the cumulative knowledge and learning acquired by practitioners from designing and implementing diverse programs in different contexts. This is really about insights gained from observations, direct experiences, not necessarily through formal methods of evaluation, but through more informal methods of just simply talking to each other and learning from the people who are actually doing the work on the ground, which is often an iterative and daily process rather than something that comes at the end of a project, such as a formal evaluation. I think this is especially important in the violence against women field where we're working with human behavior, social norms, and attitudes, which can't always be explained through scientific methods of evaluation. And we have to listen and learn from those who are experiencing violence and dealing with violence every day and inform our practice by these very important insights. So now that we know more about what practice-based knowledge is, what is its unique contribution in the evidence ecosystem? Jean tells us that she sees practice-based knowledge as a critical first step. 
it is a representation of what people at the front lines, if I may use that terminology, are engaging with, are experiencing, are seeing on a daily basis. It's a rich uh, combination of a lot of data that informs um, big pieces that we see as evidence, um, even if they use you know, methodology that's not seen as formal. In being the foundations, it captures information and experiences from a whole intersectional range of people that would not otherwise be found in the very formal evidence generation type of, of methodology or work. It captures thoughts of staff that are working on the issues even as they work on them and that would be hard. You, you know when you have for example a randomized controlled trial going on when you are in the end line or baseline and end line. Those are different processes compared to when you're simply sharing your thoughts and reflecting on your thoughts and mixing those with your own experiences, um, not necessarily in that ground. All that is what collects the rich information that is practice-based learning. And that goes on, actually, to create innovations that engage with the rigorous methodology and and then form what we see as the evidence-based. So the formal evidence that we see in journal papers and in other places is actually informed by practice-based learning. Gemma believes practice-based knowledge has always been part of our thinking, but says by prioritizing it, we can learn more quickly. I'm currently in Afghanistan and things just change on a daily basis. And there are always surprises and new edicts and new issues affecting the women and girls of Afghanistan. And we can't wait until we consolidate this into rigorous evidence and research, you know, in three years time, things will have changed again. So to me, what it contributes is this ability to listen and learn and be dynamic and change and adapt. And we saw that also through the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really prioritizes the voice of the most marginalized and those, as we said, who, who are working on the ground. It means we don't have to wait until a researcher that potentially was from the global north comes and validates the data that is elevating and amplifying the voices. And so it's helped prioritize in the evidence ecosystem the importance to listening to those who are the most affected and to prioritize the people who are actually experiencing these lived realities being the ones who contribute this knowledge. At the SVRI, we believe practice-based knowledge helps to tell a more inclusive story about addressing violence against women. But we also understand the importance of considering rigour and quality. Gemma says that comes from the weight of the voices we're hearing from. I believe when you hear the same message from across different countries, different contexts, across different practitioners, that gives it some weight and rigour which hearing one message and one voice from one place may not. So yes, we can't get exactly the same rigor in terms of the scientific evidence base, but we can get the weight and the importance of being much more representative from different communities coming together. So that's where I feel the rigor can come in. Let's move now to some examples of the real-world applications of practice-based knowledge and their impact. The COVID pandemic has been a huge learning curve for many practitioners and researchers working in this field over the past few years. Gemma says 
practice-based knowledge was used extensively by the UN Trust Fund throughout the pandemic. We surveyed 144 civil society organizations at the start of the pandemic, and we gathered their practice-based knowledge and insights across almost 70 countries, across different aspects of programming on ending violence against women, asking them to tell us what their challenges were programmatically and operationally, and what types of adaptations they were conducting in their projects to tackle violence against women in that environment. What was powerful about it was being able to quite instantly gather the voices in different ways. They could respond in email, by WhatsApp, by ringing us, however they wanted to respond. We were able to gather that information together. And as I mentioned, where I see the rigor is being able to consolidate this feedback, this instant practice-based feedback together in one consolidated set of evidence, which we could then use to inform our policies and programming. For us as a donor, we were able to use this to show this is the enormity of the impact of the pandemic. This is the funding gap, what is needed. This is the policy implications. And as we saw at the time, survivors were not able to access services and we needed more attention at the policy and national level to make sure that women's organizations could still implement their projects and were not impacted so heavily by the lockdowns. We were also able to adjust our policies and procedures. And through this, we've put in place more efforts such as contingency budgets in project planning, self-care budgets to recognize the impact on the lives of the practitioners on the ground tackling such challenges. And in this way, the real world application is being able to change our policies and procedures to meet the needs of practitioners and therefore ultimately do more to reach and benefit women and girls who are experiencing violence. The pandemic was also a huge learning opportunity for Jean in the work that she does with the Urgent Action Fund in Africa. We realized that there was an urgent need to provide um, funding for practical needs as well as really survival had become uh, political and strategic. And so we adjusted and we used a um, hybrid model and were able to talk to our donors who of course found um, sense in this. And we engaged with a hybrid model of, of funding where we had a certain percentage for practical needs and for some communities, you know, that were unable to operate, for example, sex work workers it was you know basically uh, practical needs within that time we have continued that learning uh, post covid around what holistic protection actually looks like and a lot of it uh, includes um, engaging with the economic question of defenders and yes you support a defender you relocate a defender and then what um, what about the children they've left, left back home what about their own economic and other survival apart from the physical safety and digital safety that we are doing. So we've expanded our model of holistic protection to include, um, again, some practical needs and also um, care around the family and the immediate environment of the defender. We also, as I mentioned earlier, have 
done extensive consultations based on trends analysis that we had um, that formed our practice-based learning, which informed the setup of the Feminist Republic, um, the African Women Human Rights Defenders Platform for Support. That has surfaced key pillars on which the work is based on, healing justice, and even that, the discussions from healing justice and what we thought it was and how we were applying what we felt was healing justice evolved into now having a bigger research that's informing the work, um, collective care, feminist documentation uh, in the form of a risks registry and a physical healing farm. We've also evolved how we are responding to crises, especially crises at country level that affect defenders, say countries that are facing uh, challenges with violent elections, violent conflict, conflict over natural resources, pushback or attacks on land defenders that are resisting extractives. And we are now grounding it more into a movement, what we are calling a movement-informed or feminist approach to crisis response that has been informed by our engagement with Mali, with the crisis in Mali, Burkina Faso, um, Central Africa Republic, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Uganda. As we have heard, there are many benefits of using practice-based knowledge. But, like anything, it does come with limitations. As Gemma explains, one of those challenges is the time it takes. In terms of the values in which we believe in and why practice-based knowledge is important is we value listening to people in their own voice. So that means in their own language, which will be a variety of different languages. We value meeting the people where they are and being responsive to their needs and how they would like to be involved in this dialogue. So we've had to adjust and make sure that we're able to have conversations in different languages, being able to make sure that we factor in people with disabilities can take part and that we give the time to listen. One of the feedback we heard during some of our sessions on practice-based knowledge is that these practitioners are busy, so they can't necessarily work to these timelines. And we still haven't really resolve that, that it can still be a little top down to say, we're here to listen to your practice-based knowledge, but this is my hour to do it on Zoom in English. No, we have to have the time, the facilities, the logistics, and work around the practitioner's schedule. So definitely time and logistics is key. And then resources. So we've been over the decades so focused on evaluation and rigorous evaluation that I think that we've got a lot better in development programming and making sure there are the budgets and people available. But we may have paid less attention to the amount of money and organizational dynamics that are needed for this ongoing learning. So a limitation is enabling the practitioners we support and the organizations to have that daily time to reflect and then how to document it. And then another limitation is then the consolidation which to take practice-based knowledge seriously, as I mentioned, the rigor uh, and the value is being able to bring all this knowledge together, which again takes time and it takes uh, people to be able to consolidate this and then translate it into policy, programming and advocacy in a way that still pays due attention and reflects what the people who provided this knowledge actually said. 
Um, but I think all these limitations and challenges are things that we can overcome if we're dedicated and we provide sufficient resources. Yeah, I think because to do it well, it has to be something systematic um, that you structure. And that includes quite a bit of culture shifts, especially if you're in activist orientation. We are a feminist fund, so we are activists by nature. And so the culture shifts that are required to move from that doing, what I'll call that doing, and the feeling like we're spending quite a bit of time talking and philosophizing as opposed to doing is something that I think a number of organizations grapple with. And maybe that's why we need more of these discussions to see the impact of practice-based learning. So the culture shifts uh, is one. And the time, I agree, the time taken to sit with the process, discuss and unpack, that time taken to also um, understand the importance of these discussions and understand them not as extraction, but as part of reflection and learning. The resources, I agree, the resources agree um, needed to, you know, unpack and put together this work. Most importantly, the synthesis of ideas to create a, a symphony of innovation and, and learning um, is not usually capacity that's very widely available. It is, it, we, we have it all, but I think nurturing the capacity or fostering the capacity to then synthesize the learning that's coming out of it to make sense out of it. And I agree on issues like language justice. We work with five AU languages. Um, so if you have a, a meeting, you kind of need to segment it into different um, language blocks. And in that time, because we are working with different time zones, and then the technology, um, because we are working across different uh, countries that's required and the technology needs that are, are technology that's available to communities um, in order to be able to have rich discussions. And then also there is, because philanthropic advocacy is a big part of what we do, and so taking learning from practice-based learning that has not used scientific or what is called rigorous methodology and using it for evidence um, has limitations sometimes. Let's consider now how practice-based knowledge links to participatory research, feminist research, and decolonizing knowledge and evidence building. It's very related and, and you know, they are both mutually reinforcing. Practice-based knowledge really for me, represents the power of decolonizing knowledge. Um, let's start there. Uh, decolonizing ways of knowing, decolonizing what we think is the only evidence, type of evidence um, that's generated. And some, sometimes some of the gold standard evidence benchmarks are, are really hard for ordinary organizations, if I may put it that way, organizations that are smaller, that are grounded in community and don't have the kind of resources to, for example, do a randomized controlled trial. And yet they are learning quite a lot from what they are doing and what they are learning is really informing um, change in, in a big way, but may not be seen as, as that. And if I may say feminist participatory research emerged out of the learnings from practice-based um, knowledge. Who is represented, how, 
what are the power dynamics within the whole knowledge and evidence ecosystem and, and learning ecosystem and evidence ecosystem, and what's the value set um, around research and, and other ways of knowledge or of learning that are not extractive. Those are the very principles and, and values on which uh, feminist participatory uh, methodologies for research are, are based on. And they are all informed they all evolved out of practice-based learning. And I think I'll add to that for violence against women work, uh, violence against women and girls work, that is a very, very important tenant because if we are trying to shift power relations, power imbalances that are at the root of violence against women and girls, the way in which we generate knowledge, the way in which we generate evidence the way in which we value learning and knowing also would need to shift to represent the same um, transformations of power that we we are looking towards as we work towards preventing violence against women and girls. I think the value of practice-based knowledge has been that it, it does um, mirror and have expectations that we're doing things in a participatory and feminist way that puts the power back into the hands of the people doing the work and especially in the global south. So, you know, we call things by different names, whether decolonizing knowledge or focusing on practice-based knowledge. But as Jean said, it's to me, it's all about disrupting the power, the power imbalances and listening and learning from those who may previously have not had the space and the voice. I mean, as I said, for decades, we've known the importance of participatory research and I think it has been a factor in so much impact uh, evidence that we've seen, but and inadvertently by not making the final product but as as pitched and branded as participatory, by not making sure that we elevated researchers who are women from the global south, by not prioritizing who, where, and how we fund things and what languages we publish in we've inadvertently done a disservice for any, to any participatory process that we did in the research because the final product does not seem to be reflecting that feminist participatory attitude. So I think practice-based knowledge is helping to elevate this issue and we're not there yet. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, there are still challenges because still so much of the research and evidence, even practice-based knowledge, is still remains in English. So keeping the focus on this at all times is so important to reflect and ask ourselves, is our approach feminist? Is our approach participatory? Does it put the power in the hands of those who are using and producing the knowledge? And is the final product also reflecting this and what we do with it in terms of dissemination? And if not, then we have to question ourselves and question whether this is the right way to do things. So I think the practice base, the work we've been doing in the trust fund, we're you know we're pleased with what we've been able to achieve so far, but we still have we still have more to do. Of course, so much of what we want to achieve in this space and how impactful we can be with our work comes down to funding, time, and having the human resources to carry out the work. At the SVRI, we believe the expectations of international donors, dominant hierarchies of evidence and limited capacities of organizations all play a part in why practice-based knowledge isn't being prioritized. Jean agrees, there are financial and technical barriers. 
a lot does um, hinge on funding. And funding, I'm looking at resourcing that's not only financial, but technical as well. Um, I mentioned earlier the cultural shifts that are needed, the time that is taken, the whole ideology in which we are around whether taking time for this kind of thing is, is quote-unquote, wasting time. Uh, is it a return on investment or not? So putting these kind of pieces within funding proposals for maybe more conventional funders might um, have at some point raised eyebrows and maybe still does. So those are ideological shifts that need to, to be worked on. And yet supporting, being able to support people to have reflective processes is very important. Supporting with resources, because we mentioned earlier, Gemma and I, as we were talking about the resources that are needed to take time off work, to sit and reflect, to synthesize, and also the tools that you require to have um, systematic way of, uh, because that raising voices is quite systematic way of, of generating practice-based knowledge. Uh, and that involves a bit of investment in capacities at staff level, but also some kind of simple tools that can be used. Um, may not be a huge investment, actually it's not a huge investment, but then making the case for that in funding proposals vis-a-vis -a, -vis a large scale evaluation, which unfortunately it's a process where someone jets in, extracts information, makes sense of it as they understand it, as opposed to those who have been working on the issues. Link with funding is very big and very clear, with resourcing actually is very big and very clear. There's an urgent need for resourcing practice-based knowledge so that it is carried out in a systematic way and is able to inform all the work that we are doing in order for us to increase you know, our effectiveness, but also not only effectiveness, because work is really effective, but I think it's to tell the story of the process and the outcomes of the work that are being done. And that takes resourcing. Um, there are some funders that are better at understanding that than others. And so the work is in doing advocacy to ensure that the role of practice-based knowledge is understood in the whole evidence ecosystem. And I like the terminology of evidence ecosystem is understood, acknowledged, and supported adequately, because that is something that every organization can engage with. So how do we create opportunities for practice-based knowledge and make sure it is part of the evidence ecosystem and in turn used to strengthen our work? Gemma says space must be given at events and forums like the SVI Forum to talk about practice-based knowledge and to listen to practitioners. At any events, conferences, workshops, on violence against women, that we have the opportunity to amplify and listen to the voice of practitioners as the primary speaker. I think too often we give the floor to who we consider being, as, as Jean mentioned, the hierarchical voice of ending violence against women. And I think that for me, the main thing is what can we do with this evidence? It's not just creating the space within the hierarchy of evidence but also then how do we disseminate it use it in the end what I hear practitioners need are practical tools for how they can use this knowledge 
irrespective of where it is on this hierarchy of evidence, how can they use and apply it? And this comes back to the different aspects of the tools that we use, the languages in which we apply it, and the dissemination in which we do it. And we're in the UN Trust Fund, one avenue we're using is a new technology-based knowledge exchange platform called Shine, which enables communication in 50 different languages via Google Translate for practitioners, policymakers, and researchers to instantly dialogue on research and evidence and practice-based knowledge. So we hope that that will be one way to have an opportunity to share and elevate practice-based knowledge. We think it is important to say here, while practice-based knowledge has many, many benefits, there are challenges too. It can reinforce patriarchy by creating echo chambers where corrupted messages are spread and passed on. So it is essential we always critique and interrogate the practice. With that being said, and based on this rich conversation, how optimistic are our guests that the field will find a shared understanding of practice-based knowledge and a framework for integrating it into the existing hierarchy of knowledge? I think I'm quite optimistic. It's We're having these conversations and we've had them a while. Um, I think that it's already there. As I mentioned, I think practice-based knowledge has already been there. It just needs to be elevated uh, in this so-called hierarchy. Um, I think, as I mentioned, I think that I, I'm optimistic that among us, the usual suspects, that we do have a better and shared understanding. I think the trick will be to be able to communicate this to, on one hand, uh, the donors and the policymakers who still might value the rigorous impact evaluations and randomized control trials that cost quite a significant amount of money on one hand, but also for us to be realistic that when we're talking about hierarchy of knowledge for the day-to-day practitioner, they just want to talk about, as I said, their tools, their methodologies, and they just want very succinct, clear information about how, okay, so I'm working on this in Iraq. I hear that you did something similar in Afghanistan. Where is the evidence and knowledge that this might work and how can I apply it? but they don't want to read a 40-page research paper. They want something succinct and easy to hand that's in their language, and they potentially want then to be able to bounce their ideas and discuss instantly their feedback with others who are in similar situations. And then where do they go to give that feedback on whether that methodology has actually worked? So I think we are getting there with a shared understanding And I think the next thing is to just make that absolutely relevant to the people who are actually working day-to-day on ending violence against women. First thing, as Gemma said, we're having these conversations and the voices are growing louder and louder. Ten years ago, these conversations were, you know, smaller and in, in fewer spaces, but the voices are growing louder. And whilst we are having international conferences like SVRI starting to to accept abstracts from practice um, based knowledge is you know something that really gives me hope I know that there are some barriers around the hierarchy of knowledge but even those I think um, we are gaining ground on, on them and the more we surface the discussions around practice based knowledge and the importance of practice based knowledge, and showcase organizations learning from each other, context learning from each other, 
uh, with successful impact based on practice-based knowledge, I think the more that the optimism will grow for the transformations that we expect to see. Thanks to our guests, Jean Kematari and Gemma Wood for joining us on the podcast. I am Elizabeth Dartnell. And I am Angelica Pino. You have been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SVRI. To find out more about our vision, visit svri.org. To free the world of violence against women and violence against children, we need to connect, learn and share. So please subscribe, like and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode far and wide. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time when we will be discussing the subject of Research for Impact. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.